X-ray. Well, the vaccine has been released. It'll be a while until everybody has it, and not everybody will take it. Which got me to thinking about the anti-vaccination movement and a story about anti-vaxxers. An anti-vaxxer has a heart attack. He gets rushed to the emergency room, but during the surgery, his heart stops, rendering him clinically dead. And before he knows it, he's face to face with God. God smiles at him and says, don't worry. The doctors working on you are good. You'll be back in no time. But as long as you're here, do you have anything you'd like to ask me? The anti-vaxxer thinks and says, Lord, I know there must be reasons why evil is allowed to exist. But why on earth do you allow the evil, corrupt system of vaccines to exist? God shakes his head patiently. My child, it is not evil to be mistaken, which is to your benefit because in this case, the mistake is yours. Just as so many people have tried to tell you, vaccines are effective and far safer than the diseases they protect against. I give you my word on that, the word of God. Now return with my peace upon you. Suddenly the anti-vaxxer is back in the operating room. His heart starts beating. By the time he's able to receive visitors, he's desperate to talk to his anti-vaxxer friends to let them know of the vital truth he has brought back from the other side. He calls them all, insists they be there for his huge, huge news. His friends gather around him. He motions them together close. It turns out, he starts, the conspiracy goes a lot higher up than we thought. X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is Portland, Oregon, and it is Tuesday, December the 15th. Today, back in the day, December 15th, 1791, the Bill of Rights was ratified. That's the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Without the Bill of Rights, we'd have no guarantee of free speech, no guarantee of freedom of religion. Soldiers could stay in our houses whenever they wanted to. And we wouldn't have had a misinterpretation of the Second Amendment that has led to thousands and thousands of people being killed. Twelve articles were submitted to Congress. Ten passed with a three-quarters vote. The first article was only one state short of being included in the Bill of Rights. Had it passed, the number of seats in the House of Representatives would have been determined by a mathematical formula based on population. As it stands, the House is currently fixed by law at 435 seats. If that amendment had been adopted, based on the current population of the United States, the House of Representatives would have been over 6,000 members. Maybe then I could have gone to Congress. Today, back in the day, December 15, 1973, homosexuality was removed from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's a manual by the American Psychiatric Association, and until 1973, gay, lesbian, and bisexual sexual orientations were listed as mental disorders. In the first manual, called the DSM, published in 1928, it listed homosexuality under paraphilia, the experience of arousal to atypical objects, people, or scenarios. Beginning in 1970, gay rights activists staged several protests at APA events which put pressure on the organization. Researchers like Evelyn Hooker proved there was a false correlation between homosexuality and mental illness. And in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association voted to remove homosexuality from the list of disorders and replaced it with sexual orientation disorder, which only included preferential homosexuality. The DSM-3, published in 1980, replaced it once again with egodystonic homosexuality, an attraction that is at odds with one's self-image. And finally, in the 1987 edition of the DSM-3, the DSM-3R, finally removed all mentions of homosexuality as having anything to do 
with Mental Disorders. Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with Andy Lee Roth, who talks to us about some of the surprising background of Van Halen. No, actually no relation. He's the Associate Director of Project Censored, and he'll talk to us about the most censored stories of 2019 and 2020. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. A man has been arrested in Olympia after a shooting at a far-right rally. The alleged shooter is a 25-year-old far-right protester from Shoreline, a city north of Seattle. He was charged with first-degree assault. The victim is in the hospital. Little is known about their condition. This is the second weekend in a row that anti-fascist protesters and Proud Boys faced off the Washington State Capitol. There was also a shooting the previous weekend. No one was hurt then. In Washington, D.C., thousands of Proud Boys rallied to support Trump and protest his electoral defeat. At that event, four people were stabbed and 33 were arrested. And now time for your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 1,180 new coronavirus cases yesterday. That brings the total number of confirmed cases to 95,010. They also reported six new deaths. There have been a total of 1,161 deaths from the virus in Oregon. The coronavirus vaccine is arriving in Oregon at a time when some state hospitals are reaching maximum capacity. Just two weeks ago, state hospitals were treating a record number, 494 patients with severe COVID-19 symptoms. That's a big problem. In all of America, Oregon is the state with the fewest hospital beds per capita. In the Portland metro area, the number of staffed ICU beds hovered around 85% last week. For some southern Oregon hospitals, 90% of ICU beds are in use. For reference, prior to the pandemic, Oregon hospital beds had an average occupancy rate of about 60%. Thankfully, the number of hospitalized patients fell slightly last week. The future of Southwest Neighborhoods, Inc. is going to be decided by the new city council. Southwest Neighborhoods, Inc. is the nonprofit district coalition publicly funded, manages assets for the 17 Southwest Neighborhood Associations. In mid-September, a city audit revealed a pattern of financial mismanagement. Southwest Neighborhoods, Inc. had an embezzlement scandal in 2010. The executive director of the coalition knew about the embezzlement for years before reporting it to the police. And while there hasn't been any illegal activity since, the auditor still found the coalition mismanaged around $350,000 of city grant money. The Portland Office of Community and Civic Life has proposed to shift resources from Southwest Neighborhoods, Inc. to another coalition, Southeast Uplift. The proposal prioritizes resources for the Southeast, which is more residential and diverse than the Southwest, which is more gentrified and business-oriented. City Council was set to vote on the proposal last week, but Amanda Fritz suggested they table it. Mayor Wheeler and Dan Ryan agreed, and they did table it. Chloe Udaly, who oversees the Office of Community and Civic Life, denounced that choice. Chloe Daly said, when we discovered over $120,000 in purchases that were unaccounted for, we also discovered a civic engagement system that does not represent the full diversity of our community, possibly violates federal civil rights laws, and definitely does not serve our need for broad public involvement and input on our decisions and policymaking. It is a system of white privilege in our city, supported and perpetuated by this council and past councils. And with that tabling, Chloe Daly will not be there to vote on the proposal. Instead, it's going to be voted on next year when Commissioner Udaly will have been replaced by Mingus Maps. Peabot makes progress with its Rose Lanes project. Right now, the pandemic is mostly keeping bus riders at home, but the Portland Bureau of Transportation is still working to make sure bus lines will be efficient and expansive when riders return. Between 2000 and 2019, bus speeds dropped 14%. The Rose Lanes project, which creates specific lanes for buses in congested areas, 
aims to fix that. 16 Rose Lanes are already completed and 18 are in progress. In a new online presentation, Peabot has revealed 25 new proposed Rose Lanes. Many of the new proposed ones are on the east side of the river, further expanding the scope and speed of public transit. Washington County Sheriff has hired an outside firm to review use of force. Polis Solutions, Inc. was awarded a $150,000 contract in November to review county policies on use of force. Their co-founders are both police veterans. In April of 2021, Polis will publicly release a report and work with the Sheriff's Office to develop an implementation plan. This development comes after a year of passionate demands to defund, not merely review the police. Working with Polis, a national consulting firm, may even exclude the Washington County community from discussions about policing and safety, say critics. The Sheriff's Office says no single event prompted their partnership with Polis, but the office came under fire after an investigation into a 2018 use of force case had been recently reopened. A county deputy and self-described racist knocked a Latino man unconscious in jail where he was being booked for riding a bicycle while drunk. And Washington County recently settled a civil lawsuit with the victim for $625,000. You could have hired Polis four times for that and still had twenty-five grand extra. And some good news. The Multnomah County Library is resuming services. The library temporarily closed once again in November during the coronavirus freeze. But they're back in action, offering book pickups, book returns, and printing services. They're taking extra care to make sure all returned books are quarantined and cleaned so all patrons feel safe. All library buildings are still closed to the public, too. The library is a beloved and essential service, especially during dark, lonely winter nights. It provides virtual readings and story time, online workshops, and homework help. So consider picking up a book at your local branch and tell us what you're reading this winter. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. We are now joined by Andy Lee Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored, who is here to talk to us about Project Censored State of Free Press 2021 and the top 25 censored stories of 2019 and 2020. Here are Jefferson Smith and Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored. Andy Roth, Associate Director of Project Censored, here to talk to us about the State of Free Press 2021 and the top 25 censored stories of 2019-2020. Andy Roth, welcome. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to join you. And uh, I would just add that I was uh, a high school student in Southern California in the 80s, and I constantly tried to convince people that David Lee Roth was my uncle <laughs> and, that I, and that I partied with him frequently. But um, I don't think I was ever successful in, in that. Uh, uh, my, my thick glasses and braces probably <laughs> revealed I wasn't part of the inner Van Halen circle. You just needed to do some jump? What, where in Southern California? I grew up in uh, Claremont, which is about an hour outside of Los Angeles. Sure, 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 sure. No, I used to, uh, I used to speak every year at, the, at, at schools out there, and I lived for a bunch of years in, in South Pasadena. So right on. we know right on. we know that media ownership has a lot to do with what stories are being told, how they are told. In Project Censored 2021, State of the Free Press, any findings on how media ownership stands in the United States? Does Rupert Murdoch, for instance, own U.S. news? Are we doing better than the U.K. regarding freedom to report without being partisan? What can you tell us? 
No, I mean, I think the story in terms of media ownership is the same story that we've known since the pioneering work of Ben Bagdikian and others who show an increasing consolidation of ownership. Um, so fewer, you know, more and more of our media is owned by fewer and fewer organizations. The same figure that I've been sharing with my students for over a decade is still basically true that more than 90 percent of our media that's everything from our movies, our magazines, uh, music, and of course, news. Um, 90% of the media we consume is owned by five or six mega corporations. And the obvious question that raises is when there's a lack of diversity in ownership, how does that affect the diversity of content? And that's really what a lot of my work as a sociologist who studies the news and as the associate director of Project Censored is focused on. Is this research a response to Donald Trump's attack on the media, his naming of fake news? Is this something you've done in, to some degree, a reaction of the uh, to the public conversation in the past several years? Well, I mean, Project Censored was uh, established way back in 1976 at Sonoma State University in Northern California. And uh, ever since then, the project has been engaging students in tracking um, these important but underreported news stories. So, I mean, I think the last four years has shown us uh, how important a truly free press is um, and how, uh, and yet at the same time, how vulnerable a free press is to being attacked um, and discredited and, 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 you know, to some extent, uh, efforts to disarm it by uh, the president who uses this term enemy of the people um, who refers to stories and reporters and outlets as fake news whenever uh, those stories uh, run uh, contrary to the president's narrow self-interest. So I think really the last four years under Trump has been an intensification um, and an amplification of, of patterns in news that we've already uh, that we've already seen. But certainly the attacks by the president Trump on the press. Um, you know, if we think historically in the U.S., uh, they make sort of Richard Nixon's attacks on the free press look fairly um, innocuous. Um, and that language, the enemy of the people, is the language that was used by, um, you know, fascist dictators in the 20th century to refer to um, the press. So figures like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, the real dark stars of the 20th century all liked to refer to the press when it didn't serve their interests, didn't suit their needs as enemies of the people. So that language from a president of the United States, from Donald Trump, has, I think, been a real telltale sign and a, and a, a, a clarion call to action to defend um, the free press uh, for what it is, uh, something that's vital to our ability to be informed and active community members and and the free press is something that the founding, uh, you know, figures of this nation and the Supreme Court have repeatedly upheld as essential to democracy. The most censored stories, which of those surprised you the most? Well, I'm, I have to say uh, it's not a story I'm happy about it being at the very top of our list, but I think it's such an important story that I'm very proud of the project for featuring it. It's the story of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls um, who every day face uh, physical violence ranging from 
uh, rape and sex trafficking to kidnapping and murder with uh, what one of the uh, news stories that our number one story is based on with a shocking regularity that amounts to an epidemic of violence, according to a report that was published in Think Progress. Um, so that story, I think, is an incredibly important one that as you dig into it, as um, and people can by either picking up our book or also going to the Project Censored website, projectcensored.org, where all the top 25 stories are posted in detail. Um, as you dig into that story, my reaction was twofold. One is that it's, in many ways, it's, it's just a terrible story. You can't believe, is this really us in, in the 21st century? Um, but the other thing is, I, it's quite shocking that the corporate news media have really failed to cover this story on anywhere near the scale of its significance. And there, I think we have to give a shout out to independent news outlets uh, and independent journalists who have um, who have been on this on this story, even though it's an incredibly difficult one to report. So, you know, organizations like Yes Magazine out of Seattle, Washington, The Guardian out of the UK, Ms. Magazine, and I mentioned Think Progress earlier, have all done exemplary work on um, documenting uh, the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls movement um, and, and hopefully bringing that complex and heartbreaking story to a wider public. Number one, top censored story of 2019 to 2020, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. As I look at the remainder of the top six, uh, Monsanto Intelligence Center targeted journalists and activists. The U.S. military, a massive hidden contributor to climate crisis. Number four, uh, congressional investments and conflicts of interest. Number five, inequality kills. Gap between richest and poorest Americans, largest in 50 years. Say more about that, the gap between the richest and poorest Americans and what we've learned about that in the last 50 years and how you describe it as a censored story. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing, just speaking to that kind of uh, rundown of the list, part of what you see. So an important part of Project Censored's mission is to highlight the shortcomings of corporate, what many people call mainstream or establishment news where the corporate media fail to provide us the kind of information that we need to be informed and engaged. And then the second aspect of the project's work is to celebrate and hopefully raise public awareness of and support for independent media. So it's a pleasure to be on this program, on this station this morning, and with that, in that regard. Um, so, on that, so in general, one of the things we find at Project Censored is that the corporate media are not very good at kind of covering uh, what they, the corporate media are very good, let me put it this way, the corporate media are very good at covering what went wrong today, but not so good at reporting what went wrong every day, what goes wrong every day. And so this inequality kills story, our number five about the largest gap between rich and poor Americans in the last 50 years, is a real example of that kind of, of blind spot in the corporate news media. Um, we know from COVID-19 that there are crucial links between inequality and, and health, uh, you know, health outcomes, good health, poor health, uh, or whatnot. Um, but well before the pandemic started, um, Fernando de Mayo reported for Truthout that the true root causes of illness extend far beyond the healthcare system, and they include crucial links between things like income inequality and life expectancy between racial segregation on one hand and premature mortality on the other. Um, and so these kinds of links, 
that makes sense to, uh, you know, anyone who studied sociology, um, but aren't necessarily, uh, you know, well understood in a wider public. Um, this story, uh, you know, again, this is one of those ones where you go, it's quite amazing. But as we research these stories, um, we found that there had been no significant corporate uh, news media coverage of uh, this August 2019 government accountability report that showed that poor Americans were nearly twice as likely as their rich counterparts to die before reaching old age. Um, and so uh, that story makes our top 25 list on the basis of both this importance and that lack of corporate news coverage of it. You said a mouthful when you said that one of the uh, consistent biases is that, uh, you know, the word news says something new. But if something has become pernicious and day to day pernicious every day, is it any longer news? It is an excellent question, but it doesn't reduce its importance. In fact, it boosts its importance. Why do you think, though, that congressional investments and conflicts of interest didn't get covered? Would you think it was mostly because of most of that coverage was about the president? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a tricky one because, you know, obviously Congress, Congress people are, are among the most newsworthy actors that journalists can cover, uh, probably second only to the president and maybe certain celebrities, I suppose. Um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, our story about the uh, congressional uh, conflicts of interests, uh, the number four story, it's a kind of follow the money story that isn't isn't obvious at the start. Um, and there are really two components to this story. Um, one is how um, Congr- Congress members have benefited from the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Acts, which granted a 14 percent tax reduction to corporations. And um, the reporting on that story, which really comes out of research from the Center for Public Integrity, is that the tax cuts to those corporations indirectly benefited members of Congress who hold stocks um, and, and mutual funds that are where the profits are driven by those corporations' bottom line. Um, and so all but one of the 47 Republicans on the three key congressional committees that put through the 2017 tax uh, cut um, all, all but one of those 47 own stocks and, and mutual funds. Democrats also benefited, but none of them actually voted for that legislation. So I, I think it's interesting. Uh, one of the reasons I think a story like that, of course, it's always speculation. Why wasn't that covered? You know, we don't know for sure. But one of the things here is that story doesn't really fit a traditional Republican versus Democrat frame in some ways. Um, Sure, the the battle over whether that tax cut got passed very much fit that frame, but the idea of the the economic benefits to Kong, right? It's not like the Republicans were going to be screaming, uh, "Hey, the Democrats, you know, loaded up on profits after you know we passed that legislation," um, and that's something that Matt Tybee uh, comments about in the foreword that he wrote for our book this year. That, uh, in his opinion, in Tybee's opinion, uh, one of the ways that the public's kind of appetite for news has been significantly whetted is that we're, we've come to think of news only in terms of kind of liberal versus uh, uh, conservative, uh, Democrat versus Republican. And stories that don't fit that kind of cookie cutter frame often don't get uh, the same attention either from journalists as reporting as reportable news 
or from audiences, from us as, as the people who read and, and, and follow the news. Um, so if there's not a kind of partisan frame, the story perhaps doesn't get the same, it doesn't have the same kind of traction as a result. Well, we're about to wrap, but in the last 30 seconds we got here, your number six story was a shadow network of conservative outlets emerging to exploit faith in local news. Report by Columbia Journalism Review highlighting how a network of 450 websites operated by five corporate organizations in 12 states are mimicking the appearance and output of traditional local news outlets. What's your 30-second version on that one? Well, you know, look, at we've spent the last two, three, four years being concerned about fake news, right? Fake news from Russia, fake news this and fake news that. Here's an actual story about fake news that was all, you know, but for these independent news outlets that covered it, um, um, and Project Censored's own work, here's a real story about actual fake local news uh, that is basically off, left off the radar. Um, well, I want to say thank you so much, Andy Roth, distant cousin of the rock legend. <laughs> we appreciate your time so very much. The list you can check out at Project Censored, the top 25 censored stories of 2019 to 2020. There's another good 19 of them in there to check out. Andy, thank you so much for your time. I hope we get a chance to talk again. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Thanks to Andy Lee Roth for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a review, sharing it with a friend, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.